few years ago, I remember driving by a Wendy's over in kind of the Irving, Las Colinas area, and I remember seeing on their sign these words that said, it is better here. I don't know if you remember that slogan. I'm, I don't even know if they, they may still use it. I'm not sure, but I remember seeing that. And it caught my attention. Wendy's saying it was better here, and I first started thinking of all the different burger places and thinking, do I, do I think that burgers are better there at Wendy's than all these different places? And then as I was thinking through this, the Lord just started stirring my heart, my mind, and, and, and just saying this to me. And I'll never forget this day. He just kept saying, Jerry, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And I'll never forget that. And so this week, as I'm studying the scripture, God brought to mind that day as I drove past Wendy's and saw that little phrase. And that phrase has always stuck with me. And, and the world wants us to, to think this and to believe this, that what the world offers it, it is better. It, it's better, and it will throw all these different things at us to entice us, all these different pleasures and these egotistical pleasures, these, these worldly and, and lustful uh, desires and pleasures to say, this is better. And when you really think about it, that's, that's really how life rolls, it's a constant choosing of what we believe to be better with every decision every day. It really is about what do we believe is better. And this morning, my, my big heart and desire as we look at this text is that you would see Jesus as better, that he would be the supreme pleasure of your life. And so this morning, if you would, with that in mind, look at our text. And as we do in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I want us to remember the context here um, because the last time we kind of got the context to this part of Scripture was back before Advent. Greg Crow preached on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and then he's talking about our, the liberty, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And the Corinthians were struggling with something. They wanted to go to these pagan feasts, these pagan celebrations, and yet Paul was prohibiting them because he was saying that, hey, when you go there, you might fall into idolatry. You, you, you might fall into idolatry because that's what these pagan celebrations and feasts were about, is they were about worshiping and, and giving honor to these other little G gods, which Paul's going to say were no gods at all, but he didn't want the temptation there. For the Corinthians to fall into that. And not only that, he, he wanted them to be careful because he knew that there were those who, who were maybe uh, young or immature or maybe weaker in the faith, and he didn't want them to see these others at these gatherings and to think that, that it's okay and that they would fall into that same trap of idolatry. And so that's really the context of chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. So Paul's saying, be careful with your freedom. Be careful with the liberty that you have, that you choose wisely what you do. And so today, with that context in mind, look what he says here in chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. I want to read this section of five verses to you and then come back and pick it apart for you. Look what it says. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. So he's talking to the church at Corinth. 
that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock, check this out, the rock was Christ. And then look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. He says here, I do not want you to be unaware. So Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, I want you to know this. I don't want you to be ignorant of this. I want you to be fully aware of the history of Israel. So there's going to be three things here that Paul wants them to be aware of. First of all is the history of Israel, what the Old Testament says. The second thing that he wants them to be aware of that's um, all over these five verses is the grace of God. And then third, he wants them to be aware, church at Corinth, of Christ, of Christ and his presence even with the Israelites so many decades, so many years ago. He says, I want you to be aware of these three things. And so let's go and look at these three things. He says in verse 1 that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. He takes them back to the time of the Exodus. In places like Exodus 13 and, and other places, but he takes them back to the time when they were under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. Listen to what Exodus 13, 21 says. It says, the Lord was going before the people of Israel in a pillar of cloud by day to lead on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. You see, God would continue to give the Israelites um, or continue to lead the Israelites through the Red Sea, in the great exodus, and as he led them out of bondage uh, from um, the enslavery to Egypt, he would continue to lead them with this cloud uh, even through the wilderness. And so what we see here is God's grace. It's his faithful, loving care. It's his faithful, loving guidance to Israel. And so we see the history, but we also see in the history God's grace. And we also see it through God leading them through the sea. As Israel passed through the Red Sea, it was God's great deliverance for them. And then Paul says, I want you to also remember not only these two um, significant examples of God's grace in history, but also in verse 2, that they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And we read them, we think, okay, what, Paul, what are you talking about, baptism? Well, baptism is, we know, in the New Testament, is the physical outward expression of one's faith. And when you're baptized, you're saying, I identify with this one. I believe in this one. I follow this one as the Lord and leader of my life. And so um, that's what we do when we get baptized. We're saying, Jesus is the Savior of my life, and I'm going to follow him, and, and he is Lord of all, and he is Lord of my life. Now, what does baptism have to do with what Paul's saying here? Well, it's not the same thing, but it's got the same idea. When he says in verse 2, all were baptized into Moses, meaning that the Israelites were associated with Moses. They identified with Moses as their spiritual leader, as he was with them under the cloud and with them as they were delivered through the Red Sea. And so God wants them to see, Paul wants the church at Corinth to see, that Moses was God's gift to them as a, as a spiritual leader to help guide them and direct them. 
And the Israelites were to submit to his authority. They didn't do that all the time, right? They tripped and they failed in, in submitting to him as their spiritual leader. But what Paul is saying here is, hey, listen, Moses was God's grace to the Israelites to lead them and direct them. And not only that, look at verse 3. Another example of God's grace, he says, all ate the same spiritual food and all ate the drink, or excuse me, all drank the same spiritual drink. And so what is he thinking of here? Paul is thinking of when God gave manna, right? We, we read about that in, in Exodus and Numbers as well. And not only manna that came down from heaven that he granted to them in the wilderness, but he also gave them water. You remember when um, they hit the rock and the water comes out, and so he gives them um, something to drink. And so Paul wants them to remember how God physically provided for them. But not only that, look at the last part, or the next part here, verse 4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. That's interesting. All drank the same spiritual drink. And so what he's saying here is God also provided for them spiritually. He gave to them physically food and something to drink, but he also gave to them spiritually. And not only that, it says, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. Followed them. It's an interesting phrase there. And then it continues. It says, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. And some of us, when we think of, uh, of the Old Testament, we, we don't think of Jesus Christ being active maybe or, or being present maybe, but what Paul is saying is, time out. Jesus Christ is all over the Old Testament, all over it. He's present. He's working in his pre-incarnate state. Remember that he is 100% God. He's fully God. He's always been. He always will be. Um, places like Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and on tells us of the work of Jesus Christ, that he's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of, of all things. And so what Paul is saying here is Jesus Christ is the rock, and he was the rock even for the Israelites. As they were in bondage in Egypt, and as God took them through the Red Sea, the, the deliverer is Jesus Christ. Just as he is the deliverer today, he's always been the deliverer. He was the one who walked with them in the wilderness. And Paul says right here, he is the rock that gave them the manna and the water. He provided for them physically and spiritually. Jesus did. Now, Paul wants them to know this, to remember this, but he also wants them to know that these events in the Old Testament were ultimately pointing to Jesus Christ as the real sustainer of all. In fact, Jesus says in John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so Paul tells the church at Corinth, I, I want you to be aware, I want you to know of these historical events in the Old Testament, but I want you to see in them God's grace. And I want you to see ultimately who they point to is his son, the Christ, the Messiah. And so the Israelites were God's chosen people. Just as today, Christians, we are God's chosen people. God has chosen us to be his sons and daughters. 
God faithfully loved and cared and guided them. He delivered them through the Red Sea. He provided them with a spiritual leader, with Moses. He cared for them physically, spiritually. And just as he did in the past with Israel, so he does with us today, now in Christ. And Paul wants the church to remember that and to see that and be thankful for that. That the God of Israel is, is the same God today who is caring and leading and working in his church. So here we see God's grace toward Israel, but in spite of this, as we move to verse 5, God was not pleased. He was not pleased with his people. He was gracious to them. He blessed them, but he was not happy with them. Look at verse 5. It says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. You see, God showed this great grace, but he also showed great discipline. So he was not happy with most of the Israelites. Why? Look at verse 6. Look at what he says. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. They craved evil things. They, they were disobedient to God's word. In just a second, we're going to see all the ways that they were disobedient, the evil cravings that they desired and that they had. But that's why God was not well pleased with them. You see, these evil cravings included idolatry, immorality. They were impatient with God. They also were selfish. And one thing that we see in history, it shows us that humanity has loved worldly, sensual, loveless, egotistical pleasures of this world. And the Israelites did as well. And as a result, the discipline of God came to them, and they were laid low in the wilderness. What does that mean? They died. They died in the wilderness. In fact, it shows us that God permitted none of the adult generation of maybe what we would call military age, what that would be of like 20 years or older back then. He didn't allow any of them to enter the promised land. That They all died there except two, right? Do you remember who those two were? Anyone want to? Joshua and who? Caleb, yeah, they were awesome. Uh, Joshua and Caleb, right? So even Moses died in the wilderness and didn't get to see the promised land. And that was God's act of, of discipline on them as a people. And so look what he says in verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for us. Paul says, I want you to look at this history and I want you to look at their, their failures, and I want you to look at God's grace, and I want you to look at God's discipline. And these are all examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And so the experiences of Israel provides these lessons for us. And so it bids to ask the question. I, I just kept asking myself this question as I was going through the text this week, is what do I crave? What do I crave? What do I long after? What are my appetites for? Not food, not, not drink. Um, but what do I long for? What do my eyes long for? What does my mind long for? What does my body long for? What does my soul long for? What do I crave after? It's an interesting word here that Paul uses, and that's what these Israelites did. They, they craved for evil things, for evil things. And so, do we crave the things of this world? 
Do we long after the things of this world or do we long after Christ? Because I think that's the goal of the text ultimately is to address our cravings, our appetites, our, our desires. What do we desire mostly? And at the end of the day, Paul would say, hey, listen, know that Jesus is better than anything this world could ever give you. And may he truly be the desire, the craving of your soul. And it wasn't for Israel. They struggled with so many different things, and Paul mentions them here. In verse 7, he begins, he gives us four things that they struggled with. The first one was, do not be idolaters. As some of them were, as it is written, the people say, uh, sit down to eat and drink, and they stood up to play. So what Paul's going to do here, he's going to mention these evil cravings, these, these failures that they had. And remember, he's telling this to the church at Corinth. Why? He's saying, hey, you guys need to be on guard. I mean, you think you can just go into these pagan feasts and these pagan celebrations and, and celebrations, and you're going to be okay. You're not going to fall into idolatry. You're not going to fall into immorality. You're not going to fall into these different things like um, the Israelites did. And Paul says, hold on a second. Don't think so highly of yourself. Don't, don't be so overconfident. Don't, don't, don't be so self-confident. Let me tell you how they failed. They fell into idolatry. In fact, in Exodus 32, we read of Israel making a golden calf and worshiping it as another god. If you've ever read Exodus 32 and you're sitting there and you're reading it, I mean, I'm sitting there reading it and thinking, how stupid is that? I mean, really? Who would, have, who would have even thought of that? But we do that. I mean, we can turn and make things into our own little G-gods. And that's what Israel did and says in Exodus 32, 6, that they sat down to eat. This is where Paul gets this phrase. They sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. And so Paul is basically saying here that they, they would have these feast and these gatherings, and they would sit down, and they would do these things, and it's possible that this word play here actually is sexual morality. And so part of these worship experiences in the Old Testament would include fornication or sexual morality, and Paul is saying in the church of Corinth, it's the same way. Idolatry and immorality are mixed together in these celebrations and these feasts. We read about that in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 through and so what Israel did, Paul compares to how the Corinthians are acting. And there is danger that they may compromise their commitment to God. And so idolatry. The eight, uh, verse 8 tells us the second one. Nor let us act in immorality or with fornication as some of them did. And 23,000 fell to their death in one day. And, and so Paul is saying, hey, listen, um, do not fall into the sin of, of sexual sin, of sexual morality. Um, and Paul goes back to a time in Numbers 25. In fact, this probably out of any sermon I've ever preached, or, or maybe will preach, unless I preach in Numbers, which that might be fun one day, I will probably have more Numbers uh, references than ever today. In fact, um, so that's kind of fun. Um, but Paul refer, refers here to one of the Moabites' religious feasts. Back in Numbers 25, verse 1 through 9, laden with sexual morality. And so what does God do? He puts a plague on them. 
and he judges the people. And 23,000 people fall dead. And so what's an underlining message here that, that Paul is saying too, right? Is, hey, listen, God is gracious, but God's a God of discipline too. God's a God of discipline. And he does not take sin lightly. Back at chapter 1, verse 13, God says that he hates every kind of sin. And when we sin, do you remember what David said in Psalm 51, verse 4? He says, when we sin, we sin against God. Our sin is against God. God has given us a treasure, the most valuable treasure, and it's holiness. It's holiness. Remember the apostle Peter in chapter 1 of his first letter, he said in verse 15 and 16 that God is holy. That's who God is. He is holy. He was pure. He's clean. He's set apart from anyone else. And you and I are, are to be holy as well as those who belong to him. We're to be holy. That's what Peter says. Be holy as he is holy. And that's what Paul wanted for the church at Corinth. He wanted them to see and value this great treasure that they had of holiness and to be holy as God is holy. To not be tempted in going to these feasts and acting immoral and to be aware that, hey, listen, if we don't take heed to God's word, there could be discipline. And then look at verse 9. He speaks of the third evil craving that they have here. He says, nor let us try the Lord or test the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. You see, the Israelites tested God. They taxed his patience. It's kind of like this. They know it's wrong, but they know it in their mind, but they go ahead and do it. And the way that God sees that, and Paul sees it here, is it's almost like you're, you're testing God. I, I know this is wrong, God. I know this is wrong, God. But I'm going to go ahead and do this, and let's just see what you're going to do. And, and so that was their thinking. And Paul says, hey, don't test him, and don't tax his patience. And what's interesting about this, look at verse 9. He says, nor let us try the Lord. Some of your versions may say Christ. And the word Lord there literally refers to Christ. So again, Paul's bringing up this idea that, hey, who, who were they testing, right? The pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus Christ. They were testing the Lord of all, Jesus Christ. They dared Christ to live up to his promise to discipline them if they doubted and disobeyed his word. You see, the Israelites, they became impatient with God. They complained. Even though God faithfully provided for them with man and water, yet they did not see it adequate enough. They despised it. The Corinthians were also showing the same dissatisfaction with God, now allowing them to participate in these pagan feasts, and so they would oppose Paul's teaching on this point. And so we also can be in danger of falling into this as well, feeling dissatisfied rather than thankful or content. And so Paul says, take heed that you would not test God. And then the last one, look at verse 10. He says here, another evil craving that they had was grumbling. Grumbling. In verse 10 it says, nor 
grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. The Israelites grumbled frequently. In fact, you can find in Exodus uh, and also in Numbers, Moses will record 10 different occasions, separate instances, um, when they grumble. In fact, Paul has in mind as he's speaking of this idea of grumbling on the Israelites' part of Numbers 11. Numbers 11, verse 1 through 3 says this. It says, The people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And the people therefore cried out to, the, to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Kapara, because the fire of the Lord burned against, or excuse me, among them. And so Paul shows here that, that God executed his wrath by using an angel, a destroyer, that Paul uses uh, the word here in verse 10. And so the Corinthians also were dissatisfied. They were dissatisfied with God's provisions as they rejected the Lord's servants uh, who had come to minister to them. We saw that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. They didn't appreciate Paul early on as he instructed them to bring company with idolaters and those who were sexually immoral. Um, and so what is grumbling? Grumbling is a sign of selfishness. It's a sign of discontentment with what God has given us. And so Paul says, this is what the Israelites were like. And Paul says, church at Corinth, do not fall into the same path to these evil cravings. Do not fall into the trap of, of seeing what you think is better than what God thinks. Don't fall into the trap and thinking what this world offers is better than God himself. John Piper says this in one of his writings. He says that we drive out worldly, sensual, loveless, egotistical pleasures by experiencing God in Jesus Christ as our supreme pleasure. Do you see God that way? Do you see Jesus that way as your supreme pleasure, as the fact that he is greater than anything else, that he is the great delight, the great pleasure of your heart? If you go to places like the Psalms, that's all you read, right? Right? especially in Psalm 119 and in other places in Psalm 73 that we read earlier in the service, is, is that these guys in, in saw God as the greatest pleasure of all. And so Paul says something here that I, that I think is worth noting in verse 11. You see, to help us grow in our cravings for Christ, and as Piper says here, to, to drive out these other desires, these evil cravings. We must love God's word. We must love his word. Remember what Paul is doing here. He's taking the Corinthians back to history in the Old Testament. He's taking them back to the word of God. Because what does the word of God do? Well, if you look at Psalm 119 over and over again, I think what the Word of God does is it stirs up in us affections, delight for God over and over again. 
So look at verse 11. Listen to what he says here. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. So they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. That's us. They were written for our instruction. Isn't that amazing to think? That as history is taking place and, and as things are being pinned down, the Spirit of God is thinking of us. Thinking, man, in 2020, that church at the Ridge in Carrollton, the colony, and other little cities around there, that they need this instruction. That church in Corinth back in the first century, they're going to struggle with all these different things. They need this instruction. Can you imagine that? And that's what the Spirit of God was doing. This is for our instruction. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. The Psalms say this, that this instruction, this teaching, the word of God, we're to love it. Psalm 119.47 says, I shall delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Verse 127, therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Why? The psalmist found this as the greatest delight of his heart. It was valuable to him. It was a, it was a treasure because it stirred up his affections for the greatest supreme pleasure of all, and that was God. It's God. And that's what Paul wants to stir up as he writes these things. And as he does, he gives us this final word. He doesn't want us to overlook or be unaware of these lessons in history and throughout God's word. He wants us to love these lessons. Why? Well, look what he says in verse 12 and 13, and then we'll wrap up. He says this, therefore, because of everything I just said, because of all this historical Old Testament events that I just mentioned, showing you God's grace, showing you the pre-incarnate Christ and his presence as the rock, who sustained them physically and spiritually. As you hear all these evil cravings that the Israelites had, the idolatry, the immorality, they tested God, they grumbled, they grew impatient with God. As you hear all these things, I want you to take heed. I want you to pay attention. He says in verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not and so he's looking at the church and saying, hey, listen, church, don't grow self-confident in yourself. Don't think you've arrived. Don't think that you've gotten to that point, but that um, you're, you're immune to falling into temptation or falling into sin, and, 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 and you're cool with just going to these pagan feasts and these pagan celebrations there in Corinth and think that, man, you can just stand up to that, and you're going to be okay, and you're not going to be tempted. And Paul's saying, hey, take heed. Be careful. And then he says in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as in common to man and is 
And God is faithful, he says, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So he gives a word of warning, and then he gives encouragement. You see, there were those who thought, they're strong enough, I'll go to these pagan feasts, I'll be okay, I'm good, I'm good. But Paul says, hey, remember these lessons from the Israelites. Remember what they did. And so Paul wants to warn them, don't, don't test God. Don't test God and just think, okay, I'm going to go do this and, and I'm going to be okay and I'm not going to be tempted and I'm not going to fall. And Paul says, be careful. Take warning. But he also tells them in this as well that, hey, listen, God is faithful. He will be with you as you're tempted. Now, I don't think he's saying this. I don't think Paul is saying, hey, just go ahead and go, you know? Just go ahead and go, and, 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 and hey, when you're tempted there, you're going to be okay. God will provide an escape. He's not saying that. He's not saying that, okay? That's like saying to somebody, hey, just go ahead and jump in front of that bus. You'll be okay. You'll be okay. God will provide an escape. What? No. What he's saying here is he's still prohibiting the feast. But what he's saying is I do want you to be aware of, though, when temptations come all around you because they will come. The Lord gives you grace to handle them, whatever you face. God promises here, this is a big promise, verse 13, to enable you and I to do his will in any and every situation. And he will stand true on his promise to be faithful to us if we choose what is better. If we choose to do his will, guess what? He provides a way of escape with every temptation that he allows to touch us, giving us the power to overcome every temptation. But we, not, we must not put ourselves in the way of temptation and put God to the test. Don't do that. And that's what the Corinthians were doing. Remember, he says, flee idolatry. Flee it. Flee it. Nevertheless, God had made a way of escape. He opened it up to them, just as he did with Israel, just as he does with us, because he is faithful. And so we must be on guard. We must walk closely with Jesus Christ every day, that our cravings would be for him, that our cravings would be for his word, that our cravings would be for holiness. And I just want to encourage you, man, when that alarm clock goes off and when the morning starts, man, let the Lord take you to his word and to begin to stir up anew every morning, fresh and alive affections for him. Turn to the word of God. Get in the word of God and let those appetites be stirred up, not for the things of this world, but for the things of God, for the things of Christ, knowing that he is better. He is our supreme pleasure forever. Ever, forever. 
Paul mentions here in this text that the rock that was present with the Israelites was Christ. Was Christ. And Jesus said, as we read in John 6, 35, that, that he is the bread of life. That those who believe in him will never go hungry and will never thirst again. You see, Jesus just doesn't provide food and just doesn't provide water, but he provides for us what our souls need. He came to be our bread. He came to be our drink, to give us what we need the most. The world will tell us different. You need this to fill your life. You need this and this to satisfy you. But Jesus came to say, you know what? No, I am the great satisfier. I'm the one who comes and gives you what you need the most. And he says, if you will believe in me, you will never go hungry or thirst again. Your soul will be satisfied in Christ. Jesus came and gave his life. He was put on a cross, nails, and he bled, and he suffered. He suffered for us so that you and I could know what's better, what's better than anything that this world could offer. And he came so that he could be our righteousness, so that we could have a relationship with God. Because sin, all the things mentioned here, idolatry, immorality, grumbling, selfishness, all these things, us testing God, which we all do. The Bible says we all sin. We all fall short of God's standard, of his perfections. We all sin. Because of that, the wages of our sin, the Bible tells us, is death. It's separation from God forever. And so Christ came to stand in the gap. And just as he split the Red Sea and made a path and made a way, he came and he made a path through the cross. So that if we would believe in him, we would be rescued from our slavery, from being in bondage. And instead of being separated from God, we would now come to this relationship with God when we believe in him. On the third day, he rose again. He conquered death. And those who believe in him have their greatest fear conquered, death. Where you don't have to fear anything anymore because Jesus conquered it for you. And you have eternal life, the free gift of eternal life, the greatest gift of all. And so today, do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's who Jesus is. He is the rock. He's the great provider. He's the great sustainer. He's the great satisfier to our souls. He's the great redeemer. He's the great deliverer. He is what you need. Have you believed and have you trusted in Christ? He is truly the rock. Believe in him today. If you're here today and you never have, the Bible says if we believe that Jesus is Lord in our hearts, and we believe that God raised him from the dead. If we believe that he truly is Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. As we've seen today, you can trust God. He is faithful. So believe in Christ today. Trust him and receive the gift of eternal life 
and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is better. He's better. Let's pray.